Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know medical care requires informed consent, but laws require informed consent. Politics, entrepreneurship, how you engage with your diet, health, exercise, even relationships. These all require a place of being informed. And I am so sick of being called a conspiracy theorist for using my brain and being informed. So that's where this podcast came to life. This is Informed Consent. I'm your host, Brooke Brewer. Let's start talking. If you guys have been following along with the show, and if you know me, you know that ingredients is something that I'm very passionate about. I am that person at the grocery store that takes an extra what feels like hour to grocery shop because I turn around and I read every single label word for word what's in the ingredients. I'll read the labels and ingredients on my skincare, my lotions, basically any product that is in my home. And most people are conscious of the ingredients that they have in their homes as well. But it's interesting to me, the same people who are anti-GMO, who will try to not consume genetically modified foods, might be those exact people that are barking at you for not getting vaccines because you don't like the ingredients, because you are a little unsure of why we are injecting aluminum and formaldehyde and human fetal tissues, even antibiotics into our bodies. In part four of our vaccine conversation series, I wanna spend today and talk all about ingredients. I know I touched on the conversation of ingredients on one of our first few episodes on this show, But I really wanted to make the ingredients portion an entire episode, and I want to keep it in organization with the remaining of our vaccine conversation series. So today we are going to spend time and dive deep into what actual ingredients are in our vaccines, why they're in our vaccines, what the difference between injecting and ingesting is, conflicts of interest, and so many other things are going to be delved very deeply into on this episode. But before we get into it, I want to share one of our sponsors of this show. Phytonutrients are the medicinal component of food. 50% of all pharma drugs come from plants. Here's the problem. Levels of phytonutrients in food are diminishing as foods are being bred more for taste and appearance than for their medicinal treasures. This needs to change. We live in a world, the nutritional value in our foods is going down. And because of that, it's that much more important to make sure you are supplementing your health with those essential nutrients, because sadly, we're not getting them as much in our foods. Your ability for your body to heal is directly correlated to the nutrients that you are giving it. Whether there is chronic dysfunction present, the most fruitful thing that you can do is elevate your vitamin and mineral statuses. What if all of your mysterious health problems were actually just a mineral and vitamin deficiency? Phytonutrients, you guys, it's so important to make sure that you have these. And I have found the most amazing phytonutrient bundle that has been such a game changer for me in my health. Modir has their Axis Phytos collection. It's phytonutrients of golds, greens, and reds. Each different supplement 
has a focus. The reds optimizes your heart health, supports a balanced microbiome. It's in an antioxidant powerhouse. You've got the golds, which optimizes joint health. Hello, turmeric supports the gut health and your microbiome and also helps with antioxidant capacity. And then you have the axis greens, which supports your immune system, optimizes a healthy microbiome and digestive health, promotes healthy alkalinity in the body. And it's packed with greens. Our body needs. Every single day, I do a scoopful of each of these phytos in some water. I blend it up. Actually, I use my frother and I blend it up and I drink it. And that is a great way to get my phytos. And I tell you what, I feel so much better with this swamp water. It truly does matter. Put good things into your body and your body will thank you. If you are wanting to try these phytonutrients, you can get them for super cheap. And I have a $10 off coupon code for you. Just go to modere.com. That's M-O-D-E-R-E.com and search Axis Phytonutrients. You can get the collection of the golds, the greens, and the reds, or you can just get them as singles by themselves. And if you use code 4842132 at checkout, you'll save $10 off your first order. I'll also link the exact link to how to get these three phytos right in the show notes. So either head to the show notes or again, go to modir.com, use code 4842132 at checkout to save you $10 off your first order. Before getting into ingredients and the conversation of actual ingredients and what they do and why they're in our vaccines, I feel it's important to rip off the Band-Aid and talk about the differences between injecting and ingesting. A conversation that I hear from so many people is that, well, there's toxins in our foods, there's toxins in our clothes, there's toxins all around. What's any different of it being in our vaccines? And the difference is astronomical. There is an entire system in our GI tract that is built and given to you by God, imagine that, to protect you from the toxins that you ingest. Your your intestine actually does filter out over 90% of toxins that it consumes on a daily basis. What happens when we inject versus ingest is that you bypass this entire system of filtering the toxins. You, you bypass the entire thing. You bypass the intestine. You bypass the GI tract. These injections go directly into our bloodstream. And this is how we have such neurotoxicity happening with injections because that injection is bypassing the God-given detoxing system that we have to detox our body from toxins. And what's such a shame is the CDC and the FDA research on ingredients, it's on ingesting, not injecting. You can look at studies that are done of the healthy amounts of each toxic ingredient that is to be ingested, but there's no studies on the safe levels of ingesting these things. Our pediatricians fail us by not going over our inserts with us, by not going over the ingredients. This is true informed consent. You are allowed to ask your pediatrician or your doctor questions about why aluminum is in vaccines or why certain vaccines have actual human fetal tissues and DNA and proteins. 
They are legally supposed to respond and educate you and inform you on these ingredients and not look at you like, well, it doesn't matter. They're just such little amounts. They might be little amounts, but that's for one vaccine. How about the cocktail vaccines? How about the multiple vaccines that are given in one appointment? We talked about this in the last couple vaccine series episodes. It's not just one vaccine. It's not just one little amount. It's that amount compounded for each vaccine you're injecting, for each booster, for each dose. So what may look like a trace amount of an ingredient is added up, compounded with each vaccine and each booster and each cocktail that you are given. So let's talk about vaccine ingredients. So we we talked about the difference between injecting and ingesting, which I truly do think that this is something that you must keep front of mind when we have this conversation and the remaining of this conversation, because yes, aluminum, yes, formaldehyde, they are in our daily products, which I wish they weren't in general. They're, they're known neurotoxins, they're known carcinogens, but remember that a lot of this science, a lot of the studies, a lot of the data is according to ingesting or actual topical usage of these ingredients, not injecting. So vaccine ingredients tend to fall into three different groups with a few other little, I guess you could say, trees or or little smaller categories, but our three main categories that our ingredients fall into are pathogens, adjuvants, and preservatives. So the pathogen is exactly that. That's, that's truly the disease or the bacteria or the issue that we are vaccinating for. That is that pathogen. Most of the time, it is not a live virus or a live pathogen, but in some cases, in some vaccines, they are live. So depending on the method and the methodology of this vaccine and how it is meant to be administered and how it is meant to work, it could either be a live or a dead pathogen. For example, we talked about in our polio episode, there used to be an activated polio vaccine that was a live virus, but this was causing more harm than it was good. So now the polio vaccine is inactivated, which basically means the virus or the pathogen is dead. It is not a live strain. Then we have our adjuvants. These are the harmful, harsh chemicals. Now, something that people will ask quite a bit is, why is there aluminum? Why is there these horrible toxic chemicals in our vaccines? Well, these adjuvants help to boost the body's immune response. These help our bodies essentially know that something isn't right to boost a, a, like to really trigger an immune response. So that will cause our bodies to see that pathogen as bad. And we need to fight that pathogen. So I want to give an example here, or I I just want to give a little bit more context of of why we have adjuvants. So when we just inject a pathogen into our body, especially when it is a inactivated pathogen, it's, it's weak. 
Our body can recognize it, but it's nothing incomparable to coming in contact with that live virus. So if you were to come in contact with someone with the flu, let's just say for very gross situations, let's say this person has the flu and basically pukes right on your food and you consume that food. So you pretty much are getting that exact pathogen and you are essentially putting it into your body, right? Really, really gross way to think about it. But that is going to be one of the most strongest ways to get that pathogen into your body. And then obviously we have to see if your body's going to fight it. Well, in vaccines, it's in such small doses and in such, I mean, little, little, little micro amounts of this pathogen. And because of that, our body sometimes might not even recognize it. So what the vaxologists and what the creators of these vaccines will do is they will add adjuvants, which are the harmful chemicals to this cocktail of your vaccine to essentially help your body notice that immune response needs to be happening when you take a vaccine. So your body recognizes the pathogen recognizes this adjuvant and goes, holy crap, it's time to work. It's time to turn on your immune system. We got to work, right? So that adjuvant helps our bodies fight the pathogen, okay? The third vaccine ingredient group is preservatives. The purpose of preservatives and fixatives is to prevent the vaccine from being contaminated with microbes or to go bad. Pathogens, just like anything, can go bad, can be contaminated with other bacteria, with with other microbes, or can just go bad in general. And so because of that, chemicals that are known as preservatives or fixatives will be added to vaccines to help essentially the shelf life of that vaccine and to keep it healthy and to keep it free from contamination. Another kind of small leg to the ingredient groups are stabilizers. Stabilizers help to keep the vaccine potent during transportation and storage. Vaccines are typically stored for a good amount of time, and obviously they are transported. You don't just create a vaccine in your home and inject it that next day, right? You have to transport it and you have to be able to store it. So you tend to see a lot of sugars or gelatin, et cetera, in these vaccines, because that actually helps with stabilizing the vaccine for transportation and storage. You also see a lot of cell culture materials. Why are cell culture materials in vaccines? Well, you need to be able to grow the vaccine antigens. You need to be able to grow that pathogen. You need to be able to culture whatever pathogen you're trying to vaccinate for. This is where you see a lot of egg proteins or you see a lot of human fetal tissues, monkey kidney cells, cow blood, all of these different things that will help culture and grow the vaccine antigen or the pathogen that you are actually trying to vaccinate for. You also see a lot of antibiotics in vaccines. This kind of does fall into the preservatives lines, but I do feel like it needs its own category because 
Antibiotics is such a hot topic, especially when we talk about our microbiome. The more antibiotics that we have, the less healthy our microbiome is because antibiotics kill the good and the bad bacteria. And if you've been hanging out on the show for a while, you know that we need good bacteria. Not all bacteria in our gut is bad. And so knowing that antibiotics are in our vaccines, I truly believe is important. And we're going to talk about that, but antibiotics are, are again, they're, they're in that same preservative aisle, but they are there to help prevent contamination by bacteria. And then we also have inactivating ingredients, and these are used to kill viruses or inactivate toxins. So now that we have a little bit better of an idea of what is in, I feel we need to know why. We need to know why vaccines aren't just a pathogen, right? There's a reason why we aren't just putting the virus or the germ that we're trying to vaccinate for into the vaccine and calling it day, right? Because that's not the case. We would not have successful vaccines, I would assume. And if we did, quite frankly, I more and more people might actually be interested if it actually worked to just put the German water together. But unfortunately, that has not found and studied to be an effective measure of immunity when it comes to vaccine immunity, right? And I find it I find it very interesting, and I think this is another important conversation to be had when, when talking about who you are getting your information and your data from. There are people that truly don't fully understand vaccines and vaccine ingredients, but yet will be those exact vaccinologists that essentially create the vaccines. In specific, Dr. Peter Hotez, he was actually on Joe Rogan's show, and he says, quote, that vaccines have just germs and water. That's it. Vaccines are just germs and water. This is coming from a vaccinologist, a man who creates the vaccine says that vaccines are safe because it's just the germ and water. Um, we can fact check that really quickly with a vaccine insert. It just makes me so confused how an actual vaccine creator can come out onto a show and in public and say that vaccines are just germs and water because that is proven to be false. But this also comes from a guy who profits off of vaccines. He is vaccine creators. He is a vaccine creator. Conflict of interest. Hmm. You also have Dr. Richard Pan. He's a pediatrician and he's actually also a senator. And he believes that vaccines are safer than water. They are safer than water. And it's so interesting because this is a senator who is actually pushing for mandating vaccines in schools and in jobs. Someone who says vaccines are safer than water. Hmm. It would be a good comparison if vaccines were just water, but you just throw in, let's say, aluminum, and that's proven false right there. It's not a secret that these ingredients that are in here are very dangerous. Some of them are known carcinogens. They're known to cause cancer. Some of these are known neurotoxins. Some of these are one of the most toxic known to man chemicals that we are injecting into our bodies. But it's 
It's safer than water. A pediatrician saying that. So let's go through some of these ingredients. And I want to start off with aluminum. Aluminum is in at least six of our vaccines. It's in our DTAP vaccine, our diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, the acellular pertussis to be specific vaccine. It's in the Hib vaccine. It's in the hepatitis A vaccine. It's in the hepatitis B vaccine. It's in the HPV vaccine, the Gardasil. It's in the pneumococcal vaccine. And I actually do believe it is in our COVID-19 vaccines that have still been very hesitant of releasing vaccine inserts because they don't have to yet because they're not FDA approved. So aluminum. Aluminum is one of the adjuvants that's used to essentially help boost the immune response in those that have live viruses. So most of the time when you see aluminum, it's because it's in a live virus vaccine and your body knows that aluminum is toxic. It's no secret that aluminum is toxic to the human body. And to vaccinologists, that's a huge reason why aluminum is in our vaccines because it is toxic to the human body. And your body doesn't like it because your body is smart. God gave us amazing, amazing skills, believe it or not, to notice when things are not good for our bodies. And one of those things that our bodies recognize as toxic is aluminum. It's very toxic to the nervous system. And so you can create antibodies to it and everything associated with it. What's also very interesting is the aluminum that's in vaccines is not the same aluminum that's in our daily living. It's actually a nanoparticle in vaccines, and it's bonded tightly to another ingredient in vaccine that we're going to talk about here shortly, which is polyosorbate 80. And because it's bound tightly, it's differently recognized in the body than what we are used to seeing in our day-to-day life from our day-to-day products that we use. But I want to talk about something I think is very important and I want to break it down and I really want you guys to listen to this. So the FDA code of federal regulations, federal regulations, CFR title 21 volume four of the FDA allowance of preventrial aluminum received is 25 micrograms per day. And I want to note that preventrial means not given orally. So vaccines falls into this category. So the max amount of aluminum per kilogram is up to five micrograms. And any product that has more than 25 micrograms of aluminum is supposed to have a warning label on it stating that this, basically this product has more than the safe regulated allowance of aluminum. Vaccines are not required to have this label or follow the daily limit. Now hang on to this one, okay? So let's take a newborn baby. The newborn baby at birth, on the day they are born, gets the hepatitis B shot. If you do not deny it, your child will get the hepatitis B shot. 99% of babies get the, the hepatitis B shot because most parents don't know that they can turn this down and they're just... They just trust their pediatrician, which there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with wanting to trust your pediatrician, but your pediatrician might not tell you that the safe allowance of aluminum that's in your hepatitis B shot is astronomically higher than 
than what your child should be receiving. So let's break this down. The average child, let's say, let's just say for this discussion is eight an eight pound baby, which is probably a little bit higher than average, but let's just take an eight pound baby. The safe regulations for an eight pound baby to be given orally of aluminum, according to, again, that at federal regulations, CFR title 21 volume four would be by doing the math of 25 micrograms per kilogram is five micrograms. So essentially taking that an eight pound baby's safe allowance of aluminum is 18.16 micrograms of aluminum. A 15 pound baby would be 34 micrograms of aluminum. A 30 pound baby would be 68. A 50 pound, this would now probably be getting into a child, would be 113. And a 150 pound adult, individual, child, whatever it may be, the safe allowance would be 340 micrograms of aluminum per day. In the hepatitis B shot, There is 250 micrograms of aluminum in just the hepatitis B shot. That's 14 times the safe amount given to a newborn. Let's say this newborn was eight pounds. Again, 18.16 micrograms is the safe allowance per FDA code of federal regulations. So we are injecting our children on the day they're born with 14 times the safe amount given, 14 times the quote-unquote safe amount per FDA regulations. Reminder, there's a study that shows that 0.1% of aluminum is absorbed when ingested versus 100% of that is absorbed when injected. So your body is absorbing 100% of this aluminum. That's 14 times higher. And that's just on the day they're born. At about one month, they get their second dose of that same exact hepatitis B vaccine. So that will be a total of 500 micrograms of aluminum by the time your child is two months old. At two months old, your child's also going to get the DTAP, which has anywhere from 170 to 625 micrograms. That's at their two month visit. Your baby's probably not going to be over 15 pounds at your two month visit. And again, that regular safe allowance is just 34 micrograms. But not only are we could potentially be getting the 170 micrograms up to 625 with just the DTAP vaccine, You are also, again, getting boosted on your hepatitis B, which is another 250. You're getting the Hib, which has 225. You're getting the pneumococcal, which is 125. So all of that aluminum on the second month visit. If you've ever talked with someone who has a child who's suffered from vaccine injury, whether that be some form of autism, whether that be SIDS, whether that be some sort of neurological disorder, a lot of sadly, these stories will be told it's after a pediatrician visit, a wellness check, 
after their two month or four month or their six month checkup, they brought their child home and they were never the same. Am I saying that you're going to go to your two month, four month, six month checkup and come home with a different baby? I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is how can anybody look you in the face and tell you upwards to 1000 micrograms of aluminum that's being injected into your body that's well over 20 times a safe allowance is not at all whatsoever. There is absolutely no correlation that that could possibly be affecting your child's brain. When aluminum is known to be toxic to the nervous system. Aluminum is found to stay in the cells of our brain for years. It is pretty sad that when you question anything, you're called a conspiracy theorist or an anti-vax. Why can someone question the, the, the vegetable oil? Why can someone question the fragrances that are in our skincare products and not be seen as a quack? But yet you question why aluminum that's upwards past 14 times the safe allowance and newborns. When we question that, we're looked at like absurd, insane human beings and that we just need to trust the science. I would maybe trust the science if our kids were the healthiest children in the world or if our kids were getting healthier over time, not sicker. In the last few decades, all of a sudden autism and ADD, ADHD, neurological disorders, Tourette's, depression, anxiety are at all time highs. These, these diseases that were never heard of, these illnesses that were never heard of years and years and years ago are now becoming so common. The average person has one of these. Heavy metal toxins in the body were not designed to be there. Your bodies were not meant to be able to handle all of these toxins. Yes, your bodies were meant to be able to flush and to filter part of these toxins through our GI tract. But what happens when we just bypass it and we just inject it right into our bloodstream? You cannot tell me that that is not having a direct correlation with all of these neurological diseases that our children are now having. Let's talk about another very controversial ingredient that is in our vaccines, and that is mercury. Mercury is still in our flu shots, and it's actually in our meningitis shots, but this is hidden as thimerosal. Thimerosal is 50% ethyl mercury. And we are told that mercury was no longer in our vaccines, but they are. And again, they're found in thimerosal. Aluminum and mercury together actually are deadly. Mercury in specific is the second most toxic substance to man. It's actually the first that's radioactive. Mercury is an environmental toxin that causes a wide range of adverse health effects in humans. 
So again, thimerosal is known as ethyl mercury, and ethyl mercury passes through cellular membranes and concentrates in cells in vital organs, including the brain, where it releases inorganic mercury, raising its concentrations higher than ecumolar doses of its close and highly toxic relative methylmercury. When we're pregnant, we're told to avoid freshwater fish because of mercury. Yet mercury in thimerosal is 50 times as toxic to the brain tissue and two times as toxic to the brain than mercury in fish. So why do we inject them not only into newborns with the flu shot, but we are injecting them into pregnant women. And when you're pregnant, that's being injected into the fetus. When you are pregnant, your doctor will push your flu shot on you. Some people will actually get two flu shots depending on their pregnancy and what seasons they fall into. They might hit flu season twice. We tell pregnant women they can't get, they can't eat freshwater fish because there's mercury in there, but yet we will inject a form of mercury, thimerosal, that's 50 times more toxic to brain tissue and two times as toxic to the brain than normal mercury in fish. Ethyl mercury is more toxic than methyl mercury. Ethyl mercury is thimerosal. This is still in our vaccines. How about formaldehyde? Formaldehyde is in nine of our vaccines. It's in the DTAP vaccine. It's in the Hib vaccine. It's in the polio and the hepatitis A vaccine. It's in the meningococcal vaccine. Hepatitis B influenza. Formaldehyde, according to the National Institute of Health, can cause cancer. Why do we have a known cancer-causing ingredient in our vaccines? That should be all that's said. This is study to cause cancer by the National Institute of Cancer. And we have it in more than nine of our vaccines. And again, these are being injected. And this is not accounting for all the boosters, all the cocktails. So you might think you're going in and getting one little amount of formaldehyde and you might end up getting four times that because you got different boosters and different cocktails and multiple different vaccines in one. Polyosorate 80. It's used as basically something to thicken a vaccine for proper dosing as well as an emulsifier. So it's used to help bond the ingredients. And because it's an emulsifier, like I said, when polyosorbate 80 and aluminum are together, It emulsifies the two, it binds the two ingredients together. So I want you to keep that in mind when I explain to you exactly what polyosorbate 80 does. Polyosorbate 80 in the pharmaceutical industry is used as an emulsifier by the pharmaceutical industry to enhance the delivery of chemicals and drugs from the blood into the brain across the blood brain barrier. The blood-brain barrier is is permeable to many things. And in in some situations, especially when people need medications to the brain, it's sometimes hard to get ingredients to the brain because, again, it's, it's very impermeable. And so research is needed to find a way to deliver chemicals and drugs into the brain from the bloodstream in order to treat, let's say it's hard to reach brain infections, tumors, et cetera. And so they founded 
polyosorbate 80 because it's one such chemical that helps that delivery because it is meant to break through that blood brain barrier. So the question I have is if polyosorbate 80 can open up the blood brain barrier, what is it to stop harmful vaccine ingredients such as that aluminum, formaldehyde, acetone, et cetera, from causing cellular damage and from getting into the brain? We know that aluminum is toxic to the brain. It's a neurotoxin. And aluminum and polyosorbate 80 bind together very tightly because they do, that's just what they do. And so you can't tell me that that polyosorbate 80 does not open up the blood-brain barrier and bring that aluminum right up to the brain with it, along with the long list of other chemicals that are in our day-to-day products. Is this ingredient in our vaccines contributing to the rise of childhood illnesses in the United States? Again, if the function of polyosorbate 80 is to enhance the delivery of chemicals and drugs from the blood and across the blood-brain barrier, is this ingredient a contributing casual factor in the rise of childhood illnesses in the United States? I wish there would be a study done on this. But again, the CDC has never done a study of vaccinated versus unvaccinated children to compare health outcomes of each group. Because again, remember that they believe that this is unethical because they feel that not vaccinating a child is putting them at risk. Triton X100 is in the flu shot, your influenza shot. This is a Dow chemical surfactant. It is found in your household cleaners, your industrial cleaners, your paint, and your pesticides. It is a surfactant, and it is in our influenza shot. You have MSG. It's used as a food additive now used in some vaccines. It's classified as an excitotoxin. This overstimulates cell reproduction. Yeah, it is in many of our vaccines. You have glyphosate. It's used in Roundup and it's making its way into our vaccines because they are being sprayed on so much of our food products. Glyphosate is a toxin that does also open up the brain barrier to help keep toxins out. Therefore, the other toxins in vaccines, just like how we talked about polyosorbate 80, can get into the brain because of the glyphosate that are in our foods. As we talked about in our polio episode, monkey kidney cells are in some vaccines. Calf serum, a canine kidney cell protein that's in our influenza shot. Fetal bovine serum, Chinese hamster ovary cell proteins and our shingles vaccine. Other parts of animals that yes, may be used to help culture and grow these vaccines, but we are injecting them into the human body. Human fetal cell lines are in our vaccines. This is such an ongoing debate that people try to debunk. That is not true. MRC5, WI38. These are in some of our vaccines. The MMR vaccine has WI38. The varicella vaccine has MRC5. 
The origin of the MRC-5 cell line was created in 1966. It's documented in the journal Nature by three British researchers working at the National Institute for Medical Research. They wrote, we have developed another strain of cells also derived from fetal lung tissues taken from a 14-week male fetus removed for psychiatric reasons from a 27-year-old woman with a genetically normal family history and no sign of neoplastic plastic disease, both at abortion and for at least three years afterwards. That is your WRC5. It's a 14-week male fetal lung tissue that is in our vaccines. The WI38 was developed by Dr. Leonard Hayflick in 1962 by taking lung cells from an aborted fetal baby at approximately the end of the third month of the pregnancy. WI-26, WI-38, and WI-44 were all developed from aborted babies. Quoted, all embryos were obtained from surgical abortions and were approximately three months gestation. When you look at your vaccine inserts, if you see MRC5, WI38, WI26, WI44, you must know that these are abortal fetal tissues. Even if they are in small doses, they still contain DNA. And I don't want to get political. I don't want to get into this whole gender conversation. But I really, really, really just want to make one comment that I want you to think and pray on and really just take some time to think about. If we are injecting our children with DNA from another gender, so let's just say you have a young girl and you give them a vaccine that contains MRC5 that is male DNA, doesn't matter if they're 14 months old or 14 years old, they have male DNA and you are injecting that into the body. What do you think the compounding of constant male DNA being injected into your body could do for your gender identity? Do we think that this transgender crisis, this transgender huge push that's happening right now into our young children has anything to do with potentially the DNA confusion that their body is going through because of their vaccines? Something very important to ponder. Do I know the answer to that? No. But again, I do not believe in coincidences. We really need to think about that. We need to think of the ingredients that we are putting into our body on a daily basis. We need to think of the ingredients that are being put onto our skins when that are being injected into our body. It's not just as simple as turning over the labels and reading what you are bringing into your homes. It doesn't just stop there and it shouldn't just stop there. We should be able to know why there are certain ingredients in our vaccines. And we also should be able to know what those ingredients do when they are compounded and when they are constantly being used, not just in one injection, not just in one vaccine, but potentially two, three, four, five, six in one sitting in one appointment. There is no studies on cocktail vaccines. There is no studies on the 
combination of vaccines that you get in one sitting. They might say that the MMR vaccine is safe and effective, but have they studied the ingredients that are in the MMR combined with the Tdap, combined with the influenza, combined with the varicella all in one given to our child at once? And I'm not saying that that's how it is. I wasn't looking at the schedule, but I'm just giving you an example. There's no studies that show the combination of them. And for someone to tell you, oh, well, they're just trace amounts. No, it's not. It's not when it's being injected. It's not when it's being combined with multiple other vaccines. It's not when these levels are so much higher than safe regulations of even being ingested. We need to know better so we can do better. And if we don't know any better, we can't do any better. If you don't know what's in your vaccines, you're not going to second guess them. If you know what's in your vaccines and you take the time to say, okay, I want to know more what aluminum can do. I want to know more the effects of injecting fetal bovine serum into our bodies. I want to know the effects more of polyosorbate 80 and how it truly works as an emulsifier. You deserve to give your family and yourself that care to do that research. And if you still can do the research, and if you still can say you want to vaccinate, then good for you. Because again, I just encourage you to do research. I am not here to tell you what to do with your life. I am not here to tell you whether you should vaccinate your children or not. I am here to try to help give you more informed consent that you're not getting at your pediatrician office, that you aren't getting because they've made it so difficult. You have such small time appointments. They've made it so overwhelming, so hard to find. These vaccine inserts are multi-pages and the word is so small, you need a magnifying glass. I'm just here to help. I'm just here to help give you the informed consent that you deserve. And then once you get that full informed consent, then you make the decision. And again, I've always said it, and I probably have always said it 20 times in this episode, but do what you feel that you need to do for yourself and your family. Don't take what I say. Don't take what anyone says. Do what you need to do because you are the gatekeeper of your home. But please do some research. Ask some questions. Because it's a scary world when something happens and you just say, I wish I would have known better, or I wish I would have taken the time to do my research. I know we live busy lives and it's being harder and harder to survive without having a busy life because of how hard things are getting with the economy. But I can also tell you that you, that you probably also binge watch Netflix in hours a day or scroll Instagram for hours a day. Take that time and pick up a book or listen to this podcast or go to the show notes of this episode. I have listed so many sources for you to continue on, different books, different articles, different guides. You deserve it. Your family deserves it. Know better, do better, guys. Ingredients matter, not just in our day-to-day products, but our vaccines as well. And I just scratched the surface of ingredients. 
I encourage you to go to my show notes and look at all the different inserts that I've included, the vaccine guides, the different books that are available. You want to learn more about thimerosal? Wonderful. I've linked in Robert Kennedy book that is a massive book all about different studies of thimerosal. There's information out there, friends. You just got to go find it. And you got to take the pride and be empowered to do better. So as always, if you enjoyed this show, I encourage you and ask you to please give me a rating and a review that really helps get this information out there to people. And also, if you know of someone who needs this series right now, whether it's a new mom, someone who just had a child, someone who has a child on the way, or just someone that you want to share this information with, I ask you to please share this with them because This conversation gets started by just a few intriguing questions. Too many people don't know anything about this subject and they find out when it's too late. So again, please share this with anyone you may know. And if you do share this on Instagram, please throw me a tag so I can give you some love. My Instagram handle is at brookbrewer20. I love you all. Please know that all these episodes come from such a place of love and just help And just a helpfulness heart to try to educate you guys because I know it's hard. I know it's a scary world and I know I know it's confusing. Where do you even start? So that's why I am doing this series. So thank you guys again, and I will see you next week on part five of our vaccine conversation series.